Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, I think they were, they had, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. 
It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Well, I got in the car with him, and he, you know, he got on it pretty good. And I don't remember from that moment on ever wanting to do anything else in my life. It seemed like everything in my life had been leading up to that moment at Bristol when maybe I can do this. The flipping isn't bad. It's the hitting, the landing that's bad. And I remember during those 10 or 11 flips, probably landed three or four times. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, we are back. We are back (laughs) indeed, my friend. (laughs) i got to tell you, man, I'm almost glad that we are back to give us a rest from everything that we were working on during the (laughs) offseason. i tell you what, I know you're a busy man, Rick, during the (laughs) offseason, a very busy man, and I just want to let the listeners know there's some really good stuff coming. Man, I'm rowing just as hard as I can go. (laughs) (laughs) What did you have a good Christmas and New Year's? Sure did. I didn't do much. Stayed home here with the family, but we enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, staying home is the thing to do nowadays. And uh, we didn't mind it at all. Well, speaking of staying at home, we've had just a little bit of a life change around the Houston. I know what you're going to say. (laughs) My wife, Jeannie is now retired as of December 31st. She retired from the state of North Carolina. She had worked for the state for nearly 32 years. And for the last 23, she was on the bench as a district court judge here in the 23rd judicial district, Wilkes, Ash, Allegheny and Yakin counties. So that's going to be a little bit of an adjustment. I can just imagine after all those years that she'd been a judge and pretty much had her own way. I guess now she's going to find some other things to do, right? Well, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) What are you saying there, Rick? (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe we can teach her how to edit the podcast or something. (laughs) Well, yeah, that'd be good. We need all the help we can get. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Steve, this week, we are going to share the first of a two-part interview with Phil Parsons. And this week, he talks about the influence that his older brother, Benny, had on his life and career, and also the impact of people like Humpy Wheeler, Johnny Hayes, and Lou Bannell at a time when he just plain and simply ran out of money to race. Now, that's an age-old story in racing. Right. Running out of money. That's exactly right. Hopefully coming to the rescue. Well, Phil found some good allies, I'll say that. He did do that, and then we also kind of conclude our conversation this week by talking about his absolutely crazy wreck at Talladega in just the second Winston Cup race of his career. Then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the May 5th, 1983 issue of Grand National Scene. That issue featured coverage of Richard Petty's 197th career win. And Steve, this issue also covered 
Phil Parsons' second career Winston Cup event, and it did not go the way that Phil probably wanted. As we mentioned, he wound up on his lid 10, 12 times and took some very, very hard licks. Not a good race for Phil at all, and a tough way to really get your career started. Only his second race, and this happens. Steve, during our hiatus, we did get some new Patreon support from Ben Harris, Rick C., and Eric Nyfinger, and we also got some increased support from our longtime supporter, Chris Wolf. Thanks to each and every one of you. So Ben, Rick, Eric, Chris, I owe you guys a lot. You guys believe in this podcast, and I truly, truly, truly appreciate that. You will never know how much it means to me. You are a part of the team, and you help make this podcast happen. Now, I do want to say this. Listeners may have noticed a little bit of a difference in the intro with QWare no longer being our presenting sponsor. I did talk to Eric Quinn from QWare, and this isn't a deal in any shape, form, or fashion where we parted on bad terms. Eric was, is, and always will be one of my best friends from my time in NASCAR. He continues to help us on the podcast with some audio work and syncing audio up to some video. He is always going to be on board with us. But Eric and I did agree that we kind of needed to go ahead and prepare the way for what's hopefully coming down the pike. Until that happens, we do have the presenting sponsorship available. So if you're out there and you do want to come on board as a presenting sponsor until we're able to finalize the deal with Marcus, give us a call. SceneVault at yahoo.com, and we can do some business, and we can get you some exposure. We'll do everything we can for you. Trust us. (laughs) So, again, I really do want to thank Eric and the team at QWare for their support these last couple years. It meant everything. If you can, if you're interested, Give us a call and we can talk some presenting sponsorship. Support us on Patreon. Support us on PayPal. You can do that at patreon.com slash the same podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the same podcast. Bill, first things first, your brother Benny was 16 years older than you. At what point did you become aware of his racing career, and what kind of impact did that have on you? The the first thing I can remember was uh, when he was racing locally up in Mount Clemens, Michigan. This probably would have been about 1964, so I would have been close to seven years old, six or seven years old. uh, And he won a race uh, at Mount Clemens, and he... They stop at the start-finish line and do a picture with a trophy or and the flag, whatever the case may be. Well, I got in the car with him, and he drove back around to the basically the garage area, which was outside turn three and four. And there's nobody on the racetrack, and you know he got on it pretty good. And 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 I don't I don't remember from that moment on ever wanting to do anything else in my life, <laughs> literally. When and where did you start racing? Uh, you know, I, I never, I never got to do go kart racing or anything like that. My dad, you know, was we had a taxi cab, cab company in Detroit that you're certainly aware of. 
you know, Benny was busy doing his own deal, so I never had an opportunity to go go-kart racing or anything like that. Quarter midgets, I looked at everything and just never did have an opportunity to do that. Didn't have anybody that could help me with that. So uh, I, I decided uh, when I was probably 16, 17 years old to, to, or maybe even 18 years old to say to do the Baby Grand Series that NASCAR had back then. Uh, that was a series that was basically started in North Wilkesboro on the on the road course that they had at, as part of the drag strip. Okay. And then yeah. they branched out and they would run Wilkesboro and probably run Hickory, and then NASCAR took it over. So it was a certainly legitimate series back then. So I uh, I said, well, that's I think that's the direction, and and something that would be affordable to do. So my my dad certainly helped with that, and and I had met. Tex Powell back when Benny started running the Cup Series in 1970 for LG DeWitt. Tex worked there. And we, I mean, Tex was always so nice to me and because I was at that time probably, you know, 12, 13 years old and, and, and probably as annoying as anybody could be. And uh, But he always took the time and always tried to, you know, help me and teach me and answer all my questions. So we remained fast friends that whole time. And uh, I said, Tex, Tex, I want to build a baby grand car. You know, what do you think? He said, we can do it. So I remember I went to uh, I went to a junkyard in Pontiac, Michigan, and bought a Vega that had been crashed. A Vega. A Vega. <laughs> yeah. That had been crashed. That had been crashed in a junkyard. I paid $450 for it. And we, uh, we, we took it down south, and uh, Tex said, well, this thing's not that bad. We actually, it, was, it, it, it had hit something in the front. And Tex actually straightened the front bumper. The front bumper that you know was part of the damage. We ended up using that front bumper on the race car. But I was in Detroit. The problem was I was in Detroit going to school, and Tex's shop was in Ashboro. So every you know every waking moment that I was out of school, any any vacation, whether it be Christmas, Easter, and certainly all summer, I would come down south and work on that car. And but it took a long time because I I'd, I'd hung around. Benny's shop, but not never to the point been, when he was running back in the Arca series to go over there and help work on the cars. I, I was just I was just hung around a little bit, maybe wash some parts or something. So I didn't really know how to work on a race car. But but Tex and his son Mike uh, really taught me how to work on a race car. And but it just took a long time. It took a couple of years to probably to to finally get that car together because. It was, it, you know, we only worked on it when I, I, I would be there, and, and, and I didn't know much about it, and I was so slow working on things. And, uh, but we finally, finally got the thing done when I was back in 1977 when I was, I was 20 years old, uh, and we went, took it to Ashboro. They were running a baby grind race at Ashboro. Lance Childress was the series director at that time, okay. Kip's dad, yeah, you know, yeah. and uh, – we we took the car and we went through inspection and and Lance said, we we, we just can't let you run this car. Uh, it's, you know, you you really stretch the rule book with this car. Now, <laughs> obviously, I I can't take any credit or blame for that because yeah, yeah. well I, I should I can take some of the blame can't take any of the credit for it. But Tex said, what do you, how do you, what do you you know what do you when we're building this car when I, I want to, I want it to be the fastest thing that's ever been. You know that's that's what that was our goal. So. So we we stretched, interpreted the rules, and and it didn't. Lance didn't like it, and uh, but at the time they had a there were a lot of cars there, and Lance said, "I'll tell you what, if if you and Tex will both sign uh, a, a letter here saying that 
you can run the qualifying race. They took 16 cars by qualifying, and then the remaining eight cars would be, the field would be filled through a qualifying race. You can run that qualifying race, but even if you finish in the top eight, which you probably won't, because it's a 15-lap qualifying race, yeah. you know, you, you, you're not going to race tonight in the feature. So we did. It was a chance to race, and there were, there were uh, 19 cars in that qualifying race for a 15-lap uh, event, and they took the top eight, and we finished fifth in that. So we passed 14 cars in, in 15 laps. So, uh, but, again, we, we couldn't race. But, so anyway, we had to go back and fix all the stuff that was, that was wrong with it. 1982, you got a full-time ride mm-hmm. in the first year of what is now the Xfinity Series. How did that deal happen? It really started back in, uh, in 81. Uh, I moved. I ran the, the Baby Grand Series and, and, and basically all of 78 and all of 79. Never, I did it from Detroit, so never ran all the races. Uh, couldn't afford to run all the races, but ran as much as we could. And I ran about 30 races over the course of those two years. And felt like it was time to move to the to the late model sportsman series in 1980, which was the forerunner of of the Bush series. Okay, yeah. Uh, so uh, I bought a car, ironically, from Richard Childress. He had he had had a, a late model car, and I bought it from him. And uh, so I started racing uh, out of Texas shop in Ashboro in 1980, and uh, couldn't uh, you know started again in '81. And went broke basically pretty early in the year. Uh, just completely ran out of money. Uh, had ramped up a little bit and, and, and had a had a second engine. Uh, then blew an engine and and just we, I, I remember going to Rockingham so very early in the year uh, and racing at Rockingham in the late model sportsman series again prior to the Bush series forming and came home. And I had to borrow the money from Benny to to pay the tire bill, and the purse didn't quite cover the tire bill. Wow. And I and I didn't I didn't have any money, so basically, I I said I I, I don't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. So I uh, I called Humpy Wheeler, who who I'd always you know who'd always give me some very good advice over the years, and I said I, I really need some help. He said, Well, come and see me. He was running Charlotte Motor Speedway at the time, so I went. Humpy had lunch brought in or whatever, and we talked about it. He said, "What are your goals?" I said, "Well, my goal is to race." I said, uh, and I told him the story. I said, "I, you know, I had to borrow money from Benny to pay the tire bill, and I haven't any. I don't have any more money. Uh, you know, it's hard to find sponsors or whatever. You know, basically, I probably went to Humpy to say, you know, do you know of any any sponsors or whatever? He said, "Have you ever have you ever thought about?" taking a different tactic than, than just trying to find sponsors. Well, I thought about getting a job. <laughs> he said, well, who would, you, who would you go get a job with? I said, well, first person I would go to get a job with would be Travis Carter, who was running the new Skull Bandit team for Hal Needham. Uh, and that it just formed that year. That was the first year of that. He said, well, I think that would be probably one of the smartest things you've ever done. And he, and he probably knew uh, more about it, but that's what he said. He said, I think that would be one of the smartest things you've, you've ever done. So I was at Charlotte Motor Speedway in Humpy's office, and I left there and went to Travis's shop. And Travis wasn't there, but I met a guy named Johnny Hayes. There you go. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so talked to Johnny forever. He said, I know, I know Travis would love to see you and, you know, love to talk to you and whatever. So 
he's not going to be here the rest of the day, but, you know, come back tomorrow or whatever to see Travis. But I spent a long time with Johnny, and we just we just hit it off. I mean, just, Now, were you talking job or were you talking ride? Job. At, okay. Job. Right. Strictly job. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, they they basically had started the Skull Bandit team with Stan Barrett. Yeah. And they had run Harry in a race or two that Stan didn't run at that point. So the next day I went back to see – I went back to see Travis and uh, and could see Travis. I I knew Travis the very first, or I was there the very first cup race that Travis ever went to. He went with Benny in 1970 when Benny first started running for LG. When I'm pretty sure it was 1970, and then you know, and, and within a year Travis was the crew chief. I think in 1971 Travis was the crew chief. So so I'd known Travis for over 10 years. And we'd always stayed close, even even after he'd left Benny and he went to Penske and wherever, Junior Johnson, you know, we always, whenever I would see Travis, I would talk because we'd spent so much time together early on. He said, well, I'm thinking about, we're thinking about starting a second team. And he said, if if we do start a second team, then we're going to need some people and, and then I would have a, have a spot for you. So within a, within, within a couple, three weeks, they basically decided to start a second team for Harry Gant. Uh, which Harry would be full time in in the second car and and so Travis said yeah when when we do that we'll uh you know we got a place for you so they were I was going to start the Monday after Darlington and I end up I scraped together enough money to run my car at Darlington uh my sportsman car at Darlington and then the next day I just hung around and helped helped in the pits and and then the following Monday after Darlington which would have been the spring race the rebel 500 I, I went to work for Travis so my it, it curtailed my racing I didn't I didn't have a whole lot of and and we were running you know racing full-time obviously had two teams there was a lot to do and it wasn't like today we didn't have 100 people we probably had about 10 people <laughs> yeah. maybe 12 people to run yeah. two teams and and I just I loved it there and and but but what that led and and I think probably Humpy knew this in the back of his mind is through that association with uh, Hal Needham and Travis and the Skoll team, I met the people from U.S. Tobacco, Lou and Jenny Bannell, and they became, over the years, became like family. I mean, I've, I've never met, I had never met a, a more benevolent person in my lifetime than Lou Bannell, who was a chairman of the board of U.S. Tobacco Company. And so through, throughout 1981, I, uh, you know, ran my car a little bit, little bit when I could and and we were getting ready to run a race at Charlotte and Mrs. Mantle said Lou why don't we help him run that race a little bit <laughs> so I had I had bless s- her heart totally totally <laughs> and and so so I had Skull as a sponsor uh for wow. my car and I went to I went to Charlotte to run and this is probably May so that's how that's how quickly this happened this is I probably went to work there in in April and in May, they sponsored me in the, in the May race. And this is, I mean, this is when we would have 70, 80 cars show up or yeah. whatever. And I qualified fifth among all those cars. And a uh, little side story, ben, uh, Benny was doing the TV. Benny was obviously still racing full time, but he would do one-off deals and do TV. Qualified fifth, and we uh, had, uh, had a wheel left loose, and I hit the wall. And Benny on TV said, huh, there's my brother Phil. He hadn't run a lick all day, and now he's hit the wall. (laughs) (laughs) 
I said, okay. I said, Benny, don't please don't help me anymore. <laughs> don't don't even talk about me anymore. So, but anyway, that's it. But that that's how that relationship began, and then we got towards down towards the end of the year, and and Johnny, who who I had become fast friends with, talked U.S. Tobacco into into basically starting a Bush team for 1982 because we knew that the Bush series was coming, and we end up. Uh, we ended up running the, the October late model sportsman race, bought a car from Richard and Leo Jackson and, and ran, the, uh, ran the late model sportsman race in the end of 1981 and uh, got ready to go full-time Bush Series racing back in 82. When, uh, so that was a long story to tell you how that, how, how that ride came about. But, but all, that, all that figured into how, how that happened. And it was really Johnny Hayes and, 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 and Lou and Jenny Battle that – that that made that possible. Johnny Johnny mentioned it, and and, and they were on board, and and then that's how that's how we got going. You'd better send her a Christmas card every year. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, unfortunately, both yeah. both Lou and Jenny yeah. have passed away, but but uh, they were they were some of some of the you know the most important people in my life. You were pretty good right out of the box that year. You finished eighth at Daytona. You finished ninth at Richmond, and then you win the third race in what is now the Xfinity series mm-hmm. in that division's history at Bristol. Mm-hmm. And not only do you win that race, you pass David Pearson on the backstretch and then you hold him off for the last 11 laps. Yeah. What do you remember about that day? It was supposed to be a day race yeah. and it rained all yeah. day long. Yeah. And so we ended up racing it at night. And I mean, Travis, Travis was in the pits with us, you know, calling the shots for me. Benny was there, and I've, and and uh, it, you know, we had a really good car, qualified well, and but but I think Jeff Bodine, Jeff Bodine might have had the pole, and he didn't go on the start. So our, and I, whatever, I may have qualified seventh or fifth or whatever, and that, the whole inside line didn't go. So, you know, we after lap one, I'm, I was way way back because that inside line didn't go. But the car was so good, it just kept, you know picking people through and I know we had a late caution and and I'm running second to Pearson and and we'd lap most of most of the field uh not everybody I don't think but we'd lap most of the field and uh, I told Travis Underrater said I'm you know I don't I don't know how I'm going to pass him but I'm going to do my best and uh we I think we came off turn two and he slipped a little bit and I was able to get by him and I there may and I think David at the time said they thought there was something on the racetrack and I think there probably I'm sure there probably was but uh, but we're able to get by him and, and hold him off and I mean I was I was in shock L- literally in shock. Was that just another race car, or did you consciously say you know what I I just passed David Pearson? No, I, I mean I I grew up idolizing those yeah. people. I, you know I was I was around them a lot because many started running Cup in seventy. So I was you know every waking moment I could be around the racetrack. I was there. So I mean he, it's one of my idols. You know just to get, to get just to get to race against David Pearson was was amazing. But to but to you know end up beating him essentially was uh, was more than I could have ever dreamed for. How big a deal was that win for you personally and professionally? Uh, well, I think it was, it was validation. You know, I, I mean, again, I, I I wanted to do it from the time I was six or seven years old, and uh, you know, every, it seemed like everything in my life had been leading up to that moment, that moment at Bristol when, when it, maybe I can do this. You know, maybe I can make a career out of this, and maybe I am good enough to do to do what I've always wanted to do. So uh, it meant it meant an awful lot. It sure did. 
was there ever a sense of that moving you from being known as Benny's brother to being known as Phil Parsons' race car driver? I, you know, I never thought about it like okay. that. Right. And, and it never, I mean, it, you know, people said, I mean, I was known as Benny's younger brother my whole life, and it never bothered me because, I mean, being compared to somebody that was so well thought of in the sport as Benny, you know, was never anything but a compliment to me. You were sponsored by Skoll, mm-hmm. which also backed Jack Ingram. Mm-hmm. What kind of relationship did you have with him? Well, that that was before. I mean, Jack eventually was sponsored by Skoll, but he was not sponsored by Skoll then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it was a few, it was a few it was a few years later, probably by the time when I moved to the Cup Series, that so U.S. Tobacco would have a presence in the Bush Series. That's when they they sponsored Jack, but. Uh, well, some Bush series historian I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I mean, again, again, Jack Ingram was another hero of mine. Yeah. You know, but, but, uh, but r- racing Jack Ingram was hard. I mean, it, it was hard. And I remember going to, to, to Langley Speedway that year, and, and I was really struggling at Langley. And Jack helped me a lot. And, and I ended up finishing third that night. I'm sure Jack was one of the cars. He may have won that night. But I ended up finishing third. And I, it, it didn't look like I had a top 10 car in practice. But Jack told me what to do to the car. And, and we ended up running good. So I just always thought a lot about, you know, he was very gruff or whatever. But, but I, I, just, I just thought the world of Jack. I mean, I really did. He was, I mean, all those guys, Jack and Sam and, and all those people, they you know they they never uh you know they never resented me every one of them helped me i never felt like there was any resentment whatsoever the guy i probably didn't get along with the most was tommy ellis for whatever reason just you <laughs> that's know, a shock yeah terrible ter- <laughs> terrible tommy and, and it's really funny because i mean we, we we had some battles and some knockdown yeah. battles and, yeah. and, and and i wanted to you know knock his head off on numerous occasions and i'm sure him the same but we were in daytona a few years ago and I'm standing there. I, there was a group of us standing there, and Tommy, Tommy's there, right? And and I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe. Now I know this 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 has been a few years ago, so this is, but this is 20 years after we, at least 20 years after we battled, you know, tooth and nail or whatever. And I said, I cannot believe Tommy's not even going to acknowledge me standing here. But then he kind of looked at me and said, Oh my gosh, Phil! You know, we, we hugged or whatever. So that was neat. I was I was I was glad. I gotta say, I'm disappointed. Yeah, yeah. Every single person who has ever mentioned Tommy Ellis on this podcast has done a Tommy Ellis impersonation. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do it. No. I would have to defer to Tony Glover to do a Tommy Ellis impression. He, he, does, okay. he does a good one. All right. Well, I've yeah. got Tony lined up. So good, yeah, good. yeah, you make sure he does a Tommy Ellis impression. <laughs> you did have the opportunity to run your first five Winston Cup races in '83. Mm-hmm. Was that just a natural progression with Skoll and? Yes, moving Again, up the ladder. Yeah, Johnny. You know, Johnny Hayes said, "You know, why don't we?" Well, it even started before that because Benny was racing for Harry Rainier in 1982, mm-hmm. and and Harry Rainier decided to change drivers mid-year, and and Benny went to Mister Bannell and said, "Hey, you know, is there anything we can do?" Uh, you know, he's he's been such a ambassador to the sport. He's such a good guy, and he was obviously involved with us because of me being involved with Skoll, and. Uh, so they decided they had a new product coming out called Wayman and Bruton. It was a chewing tobacco. Had a new product coming out, and, and, and Mr. Bannell and Johnny decided, we'll do that. We'll do five races towards the end of the year. We'll have Travis, Travis's team, Harry Gant team, get the, prepare the car, and then we'll just take it to the racetrack. My Bush team will take it to the racetrack 
and and pit the car and work on the car and whatever. Now, is this for you or for Benny? For Benny. Benny. For okay. Benny in 1982. Now, okay. So we... Uh, and John and, and I, we actually our speedway car we had bought from Richard and Leo Jackson, and and my short track car we had bought I bought from Tommy well we had bought from Tommy Ellis who had bought it from Richard and Leo Jackson, so so I had an, I had a relationship with Richard and Leo because every time I got ready to go to the racetrack I'd call Richard whoever answered the phone at Precision Products in Asheville Richard or Leo I said hey we're going to Hickory what should I put in this car. We're going to Rockingham. What should I put in this car or whatever? And they would tell me the setup. So that's what we did. And then um, we decided, uh, Johnny said, why don't we get Leo, who we had a relationship, because he had helped us so much. We'll get, uh, we'll get Leo just to go with uh, Benny when he runs those five races to, to, to look after our boys, the crew, and, uh, and call, you know, call the race or whatever. So that worked out well. Well, in the meantime, we said, well, if we're going to, why don't we get Richard to go with us? We'll have Richard go with us on the, on the late model sportsman car, too, and uh, if he's not doing anything to help us a little bit. So we, uh, so we did that. They, we, Travis Carter pre- totally prepared the car, and then we would just pick it up and take it to the racetrack. If I was, if I was racing there, too, then most of my crew would, would be with, with me on the late model sportsman car, and, and, and we would just find some other people until we got done with our, our Bush race, not late model sports, by then it's Bush series, got done with the Bush race, and then we would take over working on the car, and Leo again would still be the crew chief and call the shots. But I remember one time we raced at South Boston on, uh, on Saturday night, and they took Benny to uh, Dover to run the cup race the next day. So by, my, my whole crew uh, flew up Sunday morning to Dover to, to basically pit the car, and I, I mean, I carry tires on Benny's car. I mean, I would run the, the, the bush race, and then I would carry tires on the pit stops or whatever. So we ran that car five times, and I think we finished in the top five, three of those four, three of the five times, and had another top ten, and then we had trouble in the other race or whatever. So that's what started the cup deal okay. yeah. for uh, yeah. for U.S. Tobacco and for Benny and for Johnny Hayes Racing at the time. So then we decided, well, let's, you know, We'd had a pretty successful year in, in 1982. We're going to run the Bush Series again in 1983. But let's get my feet wet running the cup car, run five races in 1983. And while, while we're at it, we'll, just, we'll run Benny in 12 or 14 or 16 races in, in, a, in a second. Or actually, that would be the primary car. In the second car, I would run five or six races or five races, which is all you could run to, to maintain your rookie eligibility back then. So we ended up building a shop, uh, and it – Got it done, you know, early, early 1983. We, in 1982, we worked on our Bush car out of Harry Gant's shop behind his house. Harry was driving <laughs> for Skull, and we yeah, we would yeah. drive to Taylorsville every day and work on uh, work on our Bush cars at at Harry's shop. Andy Petrie was one of my guys, uh, and Andy was actually delivering batteries at the time. So Andy at at, at night after he got done delivering batteries and, and Probably wasn't a very good battery delivery salesman because because most of the days too he would be at he would be at the shop at Harry Gets and we'd be working on the cars and and Gary yeah. Snipes and and Scott Robinette and then yeah. we had some guys that helped us on the weekend but uh, so in 1983 we said okay we're gonna we're gonna move, we moved into this new building in Denver North Carolina and uh, and then we we got two cars ready to go to Daytona my car to run 
the first of five races and Benny's car to run, you know, the first of 12, 14 races. So we hired some more people and some of the, you know, some of the people that were helping us on, on weekends on the Bush team, we hired full time. And uh, that's, that's how that deal got started. Now you ran the Daytona 500 mm-hmm. that year. And for the first time, you're actually on the track with Benny mm-hmm. in competition. Yeah. First time as far as I I'm aware of. Yeah, first time for sure. Yeah, what was that? See, like? Benny never ran a never ran a Bush no, Series race. No. Yeah. What was that like for you to be on the track with him? It was pretty cool. I mean, it was. I mean, not somebody that I'd looked up for and looked up to my whole life, and and I I knew more about you know the, the stats of his career than he did. I mean, well, you know, once you're doing it, it's hard to remember. But I, yeah. you know, I knew everything he'd ever done or whatever. So it was, and he was so much help too, because I mean that was my first time, and and back then. You know, now we don't test much anymore. Back then, we we would we probably tested six or eight days over the winter at Daytona or or Talladega, testing for Daytona. So we were together, you know, so much there, and and had so many questions, and obviously always helped me with it. So uh, that was it was pretty surreal, really. Your next race is Talladega, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that doesn't go so well. You no, end up no. on your lid ten or twelve, fifteen <laughs> times, or whatever. Is there anything that you do remember about that accident? Everything. Do you really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What do you remember? Well, we we're, we qualified in the top ten, and, and a little side note: we ran a Buick at Daytona, and we felt like maybe we were it wasn't as good a body as something else. So remember, Kale uh, won Daytona with Le Mans. Yeah. In nineteen eighty in nineteen eighty three. Uh, remember he remember he flipped qualifying, right. ran two hundred, yeah. and then yeah. flipped on his second lap, and had to go get a go get the show car, which was a Pontiac Le Mans. And so they they had you know they had made the switch to Chevrolet, the Harry Rainier team that Kale was driving for had made the switch to Chevrolet. So they actually cut the body off that Daytona five hundred winning car, and we bought the body. And and Johnny Seiler and Claude Queen put the body back on that. Buick, we took cut the Buick body off and put that Pontiac Le Mans body on that car. That was the same car that we'd run Daytona, but with the Le Mans body that had won the Daytona 500 with Kelly Yarbrough. But anyway, you know, car was really good, fast. We were running the top ten, had a caution flag for whatever reason, and then we had a uh, had a restart. At that time, uh, the lap cars were on uh, on the inside line, and and lead lap cars on the outside line. Where Daryl had had some sort of problem and gotten lapped. And I was running eighth or ninth or something like that. And going in, going in turn one, by the time uh, that Daryl had drifted back towards, towards me running eighth or ninth, as we entered turn one, we got together. And that, and that got me out of shape, and then I ended up turning sideways and, and hitting the wall head on. And then that, and the car just lifted up on the right side and just started tumbling down the racetrack. And I, re, I mean, I remember every every time the flipping isn't bad; it's the hitting, the landing that's bad. <laughs> yeah. And I remember, you know, a thing landed probably during those ten or eleven flips. Probably landed three or four times, and uh, and it's they, it lands really hard. By the way, if it had just been the that initial impact into the wall, that was a pretty hard lick. It was a hard lick, yeah. Once once everything settles and everything, how long did it take you to kind of collect your senses? And I mean, I'm sure you're checking to make sure everything's still attached. And well, it was uh, everything hurt. Yeah. Right then, and it broke my shoulder. Yeah. Um, and I obviously didn't know that at the time, and and I was upside down, 
and uh, and, the, and but the roof was off the car and it was on fire. So I don't know how long it took me to to get orientated enough to undo my belts. And it wasn't like you undid the belts and you fell and hit your head. I mean, I was basically laying against the ground anyway. And uh, and I crawled out through the passenger side window. We didn't have side windows then uh, because the thing, it, it wasn't a big fire, but it was on fire. So I crawled out and uh, and then a couple guys grabbed me and then and drug me away from the car. But it, it never, you know, exploded or anything like that. The next week's Grand National scene mentioned that Benny radioed to his crew and told them to go find somebody to take over for him mm-hmm. because he wanted to go check on you. I'm sure you didn't know about that at the time, but what was your reaction? I, like? I didn't know about t- that till way later because, I mean, he had told me years later, I think, that, or, or maybe somebody else told me, but it, it was a long time before. that was. He said that was driving by and seeing my car laying there was the worst experience of his career. And again, I, it was years before I, I knew that, you know, how it had affected him. I did know that he, uh, and, and I don't think I knew it that day, but they said, you know, Benny said, hey, I'm get, get me somebody. They said he was just, you know, just a basket case on the radio. And, uh, and once, they got, once they got the report from the Enfield Hospital that I, was, that I was fine, I might have a hurt shoulder, it turned out to be broken, that he was, then it was fine. He flipped a switch and went on to try to win that race and ended up finishing second to the king. Steve, I know that you worked with Benny Parsons for a lot of years. Sure. At what point did you become aware of his brother, Phil, and his desire to go racing? About the time that he was driving the Baby Grand Series. Okay. That's the fact. Most of us became familiar with Phil at that point. Now, let me tell you something. There was a bit of a confusion. See, Benny was 16 years older than Phil. And I said, well, he... Phil might be Benny's son. (laughs) (laughs) So I went up to Benny and I said, "Uh, can I ask you, Benny, what the heck were you doing when you were a teenager? (laughs) He said, what are you talking about? I said, Phil, that's not my kid. That's my brother. (laughs) (laughs) And he didn't even look alike either. But that was the truth. He was his brother and he's several years younger. It was a pretty interesting deal, I can tell you that, Rick. Talking about the sports past meeting its present, Phil remembered Benny winning a race up in Michigan and taking Phil for a quick ride afterwards in the race car. Now, Phil's six or seven years old at that point, and he said from that point on, he cannot remember ever wanting to do anything other than drive a race car. Think about the impact that that must have made Sure. On Phil Parsons, because, you know, that kind of thing happens at short tracks all the time. Kids come down out of the grandstands and they get in riding the pace car. They get to ride in the race car or whatever. And there's a picture on the cover of second to none of that exact thing happening. LD Ottinger taking a bunch of kids for a ride in his race car after he'd won a race. But that was so cool because we have seen Kevin Harvick and Kyle Busch both letting their sons ride in the race car on the way to victory lane. So you can just imagine how powerfully that experience captivated, not only Phil, but also Keelan Harvick and Brexton Bush. It's got to be quite an experience for a little boy to ride into a race car with his father. I mean, that's, that's unique. Phil got his start driving 
in a Vega. <laughs> a Vega, Steve. <laughs> I, I, that's hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> he got his start driving a Vega in what was then called NASCAR's Baby Grand Division, which was also called the International Sedan Series, the Darlington Dash Series, the Charlotte Daytona Dash Series. <laughs> And so forth. Other drivers who got their start in that division included Rob Moroso, Larry Pearson, Robert Presley, Michael Waltrip, Davey Allison, Kerry Earnhardt, Morgan Shepard, and Andy Houston. Steve, I will say this. I was not a huge fan of that division racing at Daytona. <laughs> that wasn't good. <laughs> no, but here's the idea behind that series. Sales of compact cars from Detroit were increasing very rapidly believe it or not that a compact car usually was bought as the second car for a family and the sales of muscle cars started to back off a little bit so nascar decided to take advantage of that situation and use it to its own good by having those popular cars race just like they did with the original family car you know the hudson's and all that they were in your driveway at home, and the idea was NASCAR was going to race cars that looked like the family car. Well, that's what they were doing here, only it was a different model of car. Here's something you didn't know. One of my very first cars was a Vega. So if you think me driving a Toyota Tercel looked strange, just imagine me in a Vega. <laughs> <laughs> well, in my day, in my day, which was before your day, it was the Corvair <laughs> was the Vega of its time. Ralph Nader wrote about it, and the title of his book was Unsafe at Any Speed. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't try that car out. I tried it on. <laughs> <laughs> In 1981, Phil had moved up and was running the late model sportsman division, what eventually became what we now know as the Xfinity Series, and he runs out of money very early in the season and he has to go to Benny and borrow money to pay the tire bill at Rockingham. And then the purse money doesn't cover the tire bill. That's <laughs> called a financial pickle. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know where to go or what to do. So he calls Humpy Wheeler at Charlotte. Steve, how many careers in NASCAR has Humpy Wheeler impacted? Too many to count. And here's why they went to Humpy a lot of times. Humpy worked with the drivers. He was a constant promoter, and he decided the best way to promote his races was to get drivers involved. I can't tell you how many publicity stunts Humpy pulled that involved drivers. So they all got to know him pretty well, and I think they felt safe in asking him for help. He went to Humpy. He went to Humpy and asked Humpy what he thought he should do, and Humpy turned it around on him and asked Phil what he'd want to do. And Phil said, I want to race. Well, do you have any other options? I could get a job. And Humpy said, with who? And Phil said that he'd probably head over to Travis Carter's new Skull deal. Phil knew Travis from his time working on Benny's cars, so that was a fairly logical first step. Phil went straight from Humpy's office to Travis's shop. Travis wasn't there, but he did meet Johnny Hayes. For those who don't know, who was Johnny Hayes and how much of an impact did he have? 
on the sport way back when. Well, as Johnny used to joke, he was a former phosphate enema salesman. <laughs> <laughs> but he lined himself up with uh, Travis and other people in racing, particularly Lou Bannell at, at, for Skoll. And he got a position with them as listed as an owner, okay? But I think he did more than that. I think he was. He used his marketing ingenuity to help those teams and drivers get exposure. So it was natural for him to do this sort of thing. And that's where he had the great influence on several teams and several drivers. Phil wound up running his late model sportsman car at Darlington and then sticking around the next day to go to work for Travis Carter on Harry Gant's car. And Harry finished second that day, of course. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so not only does Phil get gainful employment, he goes on and he meets not only Johnny Hayes, but he also meets Lou Bannell, who right. was the chairman of the board at U.S. Tobacco. And going into the May Charlotte weekend, just maybe a month after he had started work for Johnny Hayes and Travis Carter, Lou Bannell's wife said, why don't we help this nice little kid, Phil Parsons? And you know how much influence a wife has on her husband. <laughs> and that is how Phil's relationship with Skoll got started. Skoll wound up sponsoring Phil in the inaugural season of what is now the Xfinity series in 1982. And Phil went on to win that division's third ever race at Bristol. Now, not only did Phil pass David Pearson to claim the win, he also held him off over the last 11 laps to win that race, Steve. How big a deal was that for Phil? Not only to win the race, but to pass David Pearson. Oh, that was a tremendous moment for Phil. Now, look at it this way, too. Winning that race so quickly in this new association with Skull and Lou Bannell and Johnny Hayes simply cemented that relationship. And it would last a right good while because they knew together they could achieve success, even passing David Pearson. Like so many other people in the sport over the years, Phil was closely associated with a family member. He was known, at least at first, as Benny's little brother. He said that never bothered him. And I wonder how many others could say that. It depends upon, of course, the relationship with your brother. I mean, if it is the type of relationship siblings should have, it wouldn't bother him. Wouldn't bother either one of them. Well, you look at how many other family members have raced. You're talking about fathers and sons. True. You're talking about brothers. But according to Phil, that never bothered him. Now, he did talk about one point where <laughs> where Benny said something in the broadcast booth about Phil hitting everything on the <laughs> racetrack. <laughs> and Phil said that he thought to himself, you know what, Benny, please don't try to help me anymore. <laughs> But that was more, I think, good-natured joshing and you know, sure, brothers sure. being brothers. And then Phil uses his experience in the late model sportsman division, and he gets an opportunity in Cup. He runs the 1983 Daytona 500. That's the first time he had ever been on the track with Benny. And then he goes to Talladega for the second Winston Cup race of his career. And we'll talk about the event itself in our second segment. But, Steve, here's something that I did not know. The body, 
the outer shell sheet metal on Phil's car at Talladega had been purchased from Rainier Racing after Kel Yarbrough had taken it to victory in that year's Daytona 500. I did not know that either. So, again, this interview unveils a little bit of a detail that I did not know about our sports past. So I thought that was a cool detail. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. And just yesterday, Steve, our buddy Brian posted a couple of Kenny Irwin T-shirts. Ooh, those would be nice to have. Yes, they would. So you can check that out by following Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens. And check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, the May 5th, 1983 issue of Grand National Scene carried coverage of Richard Petty's 197th career win in the Winston 500 at Talladega. He was getting pretty doggone close to 200 wins. Yeah, it would happen too, by the way, (laughs) as we all know. (laughs) That gave him wins in both the spring and fall events at each of the 15 tracks that held Winston Cup races at the time. Richard said in your race lead, as far as being the first to win them all, I guess it means a lot. But as far as ranking with some of the other records I've set, it isn't that important. Don't get me wrong, though. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> kind of casual about the whole deal. <laughs> well, I guess when you've done the things that Richard Petty did over the course of his career, what's more right, than you're exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> to finish first, first you've got to finish, and that was certainly the case with Richard. Some way, somehow, he was able to get through the crash on lap 71 that was triggered when Phil Parsons got together with Daryl Waltrip going in to the first turn and again phil had this absolutely wicked looking series of barrel rolls he caught on fire before he came to a rest on his roof and from the video it appeared that two fans from the infield basically ran to phil's car and dragged him like a limp rag doll away from that car i may be wrong here but i think it was two photographers Okay. who were over in there between the first and second turn. And we saw them run toward Phil, and each man grabbed an arm mm-hmm. and pulled uh, Phil away from that wreck. As we will talk about a little bit later on, that might not have been the right thing to do. <laughs> well, Phil did sustain a fracture of his left shoulder blade. I couldn't help but wonder if that didn't exacerbate or make the injury worse or or whatever by those two guys dragging him out of the car. But I'm going to take up for them a little bit because if a car is on fire, a car is on fire and you do what you got to do to help. You're a hundred percent right. They didn't think about what they might do to Phil's arm. They sure knew they couldn't let Phil stay where he was. Not with that fire going. Pole sitter, Kel Yarbrough, Kyle Petty, David Pearson, Tim Richmond, A.J. Foyt, Jody Ridley, Morgan Shepard, and Ricky Rudd were also involved in this accident. 
And most of those guys, Steve, were done for the day. And only Morgan and Ricky were able to continue. So right. that was a big wreck. Right. Not surprising that that many cars could not continue. Again, talk about the big one. This was a big one. Richard saw basically the entire thing. He said in your race story, when I got up to the accident, I saw Daryl sideways and I saw his right door. Then I saw all of those cars in front of me. And at the time, a pocket had opened up. I was in the right place and went right through it. It closed right behind me and looking in my rear view mirror, I knew Kyle was going to get into it. Kyle Petty, Richard's son, was diagnosed with a sprained shoulder and bruises pretty much just like Phil had been. But Steve, this quote from Richard is absolutely devastating when you consider that Richard was Kyle's dad. This is what Richard said. I was really concerned at first and radioed back to the crew to get someone down there to check on him. But when I came back around, I was less concerned because although his car was torn up at both ends and on the side, it looked like he'd been hit by other cars and not the wall. Now listen to this. I saw him slumped in the car and knew he'd been knocked out, but I was told they had revived him and he was up and wandering around. It wasn't anything I thought about for the rest of the race. As a father, I can't imagine being in that race car and continuing to race after seeing my son slumped over, knocked out in a wrecked race car. Well, it sounds very cold, Rick. I'll grant you that. But this is racing. Father and son know what's involved in racing. And part of that is possible injury, certainly wrecks. It's not that you're unfeeling for your son when this sort of thing goes on. You and he both realize it is part of what you want to do and love to do. And therefore, you just have to take it as it comes. And Steve, we've seen it time and time and time again, where one family member gets in an accident and the other family member continues to race. Right, right. That's so exactly. that, yeah, that's a hardcore thing to have to do, but there's something in a racer's DNA that enables them to do that. I agree with you. That's exactly right. And that's the case here. Benny had been so shaken up by the side of Phil's mangled car that he actually had his crew go get Tim Richmond to take over his car so he could go check on Phil. But like Richard's team, Benny's team came back to him with the news that Phil was going to be okay. Benny stayed in the race and he finished second, just a couple of car lengths behind Richard. Another example of what we were talking about earlier. That finish was very, very close with Benny and Lake Speed right on Richard's heels at the checkered flag. Benny said, Richard was always right in front of me. When I went high, so did he. When I went low, so did he. I would have done the same thing in his shoes. It was like he was turning my own steering wheel. Wherever I went, he was there. Steve qualifying was the big news going into the race itself. Kel Yarbrough took the pole with a speed of 202.650 miles an hour, nearly two and a half miles an hour faster than the all-time fastest mark that Benny Parsons had set the year before at Talladega. Now, keep in mind the fact that Kale had flipped his car on his second qualifying lap earlier that year at Daytona, and Steve, it sounded like he wasn't entirely sure about Talladega either. Uh, he wasn't the only one. 
Kel said, I knew that first lap was a good one, but I had mixed emotions about taking the second one. Yes, I thought hard about that second lap and what happened at Daytona. I wondered if I could do it again. The car was loose, but it had to be that way to beat everyone else. It was terribly loose going through turns three and four. I was lucky I made it. I would hate to think I would have to go any faster because I might not have made it. I used every bit of ability I had to run those two laps. I was right on the ragged edge. Now, there were a lot of drivers that got to 200 miles an hour or close to it on their first lap and didn't bother (laughs) with the second lap because they were so uncertain of what might happen. The cars were loose, very loose at those high speeds. And everybody saw what happened to Kale at Daytona. I don't think they wanted to take a chance that it would happen to them. In all, six drivers qualified at more than 200 miles an hour. And to make the top 20 in first round qualifying, drivers needed to be better than 197 miles an hour. It was, at the time, the fastest field in NASCAR history. In race mode, in the draft, Kale figured that cars would be going 210 yeah. miles an hour. He was right. And what NASCAR didn't know at the time, because this type of qualifying and race speeds went on for quite a while. And as usual, it took something to happen. Years later, it took something to happen before NASCAR clamped down on the speeds these cars were producing. Well, here's the deal. Real men in NASCAR want to go as fast as they possibly can. Forget about the restrictor plates. Take them off. If you don't like it, tie a kerosene rag around your ankles so the ants don't crawl up your leg and bite your candy ass. <laughs> Hello, Dale Earnhardt. <laughs> Try telling Kel Yarbrough that. There has never been a tougher individual ever to strap into a race car than Kel Yarbrough. Are you imagining with trouble you're going to tell Kel that? Well, here's what Kel said about the speeds. I think that is a bit too fast. At that speed, all you can do is hang on. Sure, cars can go 210 miles an hour without any problem in a straight line, but if there is any problem, you are going to be in a lot of trouble. I really think that the fans would see a much better race if the speeds were slower, say about 197 miles an hour. I don't think they could tell the difference, but if the speeds were running now, you'll have a couple of cars which will run at the very top speed and everyone else is just hanging on. Slower speed would change that a lot. Now, it turns out that that was a very prophetic quote from Kel because he was exactly right. Slowing down the cars made racing better and that's what NASCAR ultimately did. As if to underscore what Kel was saying, Davy Allison won Talladega's ARCA race that weekend, but the race was marred by accidents that fatally injured 35-year-old Ken Kala and left Bob Brevac with first, second, and third-degree burns over 25% of his body. Ken had failed to qualify for the Winston Cup event, so he took that same car into the ARCA race. He lost control on the fourth lap, spun to the inside, and hit a guardrail and was left with very extensive head injuries, and he was pronounced dead at the Enfield Care Center. A little more than 20 laps later, something broke on Bob Brevac's car, and it was engulfed in flames. And Steve, to make matters even worse, this was the second straight ARCA race at Talladega in which a driver had lost his life 
after Gene Richards had died the previous August. So, Steve, that, I don't know. You are not going to be the one to go to Cal Yarborough and call him a wimp. Well, right. That cars need to, needed to be slower. But Cal was exactly right, in my opinion. Now, as for the ARCA thing, I don't want to put anybody down who is a driver. Let's be honest, though. The ARCA drivers were not at the level of the Winston Cup drivers. I think that's pretty well uh, an accepted truth. Consequently, when things happen on the track at high speeds with guys that don't have the familiarity with what's going on, as the Winston Cup guys do, accidents can be more frequent and potentially more deadly. Steve, Richard Petty won this race, but earlier that weekend, you must have had a time for yourself putting together your column for this week's paper. You evidently walked with Richard Petty to his car <laughs> for qualifying. And at Talladega, that isn't exactly a short little stroll. No, no, it's not. <laughs> it's a haul. You talk to him about a little bit of everything. Men's fashions. <laughs> if it's anything besides Texas jeans, then I don't know anything about it. Look at me. I'm dressed in a driver's uniform. Does that tell you what I know about fashion? It should. Linda buys all my clothes for me. She's aware of what is in style and she gets it for me. That's how I keep up. Now, I wonder <laughs> if Linda was the one that bought him that 1970s leisure suit that's so famous in that picture of him at the Winston Cup banquet. Man, that thing was, even for them, it was pretty hideous. <laughs> <laughs> but leisure suits were the thing in the 70s. Okay. So where's the pictures of you in your leisure suit? They're long since thrown away. <laughs> <laughs> you also talked to Richard Petty about the space program. Yes, I think it's a good thing. I think we are getting a lot of technology and brain power from it. I think that by going into space, we are learning a great deal that we can use on Earth. You asked him about teenagers, and Richard Petty said, I got some. Really, they are so much smarter now. My 10-year-old Rebecca knows more now than I did when I graduated from high school. They don't have any more book sense or learning, but they know much more about what is going on in the world and everyday stuff too. You asked him about welfare and Kyle was right there. So Kyle jumped in on this answer. He was acting as Richard's PR guy or whatever. Kyle jumped in and said, as my daddy's campaign manager, I wish to say that we will not make any comments on social programs. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, you asked him about Democrats. And Richard said, well, I reckon I can't say too much about them since I've got to have their votes if I'm going to get elected to office. I'm already a county commissioner and I need them. You know, I've got a great campaign motto if I ever run for governor. I'll say that I can only screw up half as much as the old governor because I'll be in the state capitol only half the time. The rest of the time, I'll be gone racing. <laughs> well, let me tell you, the idea for this column came from a column I did earlier, about 1978, with Bobby Allison. And I just asked him the various topics that were prevalent in the day, like China, you know, and I asked about women and women's rights and things like that. And I said to myself back then, it worked out so well. And I think it gave a different perspective of the drivers to the readers that I was going to do it many, many times as I went forward. This time I corralled Richard and he gave me those great answers. 
And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting talking about being a county commissioner and everything. There were rumblings that Richard should run for governor of North Carolina. Now, he never did, but he kept his hand in politics. And he did run for secretary of state yes. in North Carolina. He didn't win, but he did go for the office. So he was involved in the politics in North Carolina. And Steve, I did the story on Richard's run for secretary of state, for scene. Right. And he said that exact same thing. He said, I can't screw up half as bad because I'll be gone half the time racing. And at the time, I thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. And it was so original. And I had done such a good job of reporting that I had got such a great comment. And here I <laughs> dig up this comment from 14 years earlier. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Well, Richard had his stock answer for that kind of question, didn't he? <laughs> He's got a stock answer for a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> there was also a feature in this issue by Gary McCready on Richie Panch making a return to racing. Richie was the son of Marvin Panch, and Richie had run a total of 47 Winston Cup races over the course of his driving career between 1973 and 1976. His best career finish was a third behind winner Richard Petty and second place Benny Parsons at Richmond in 1974. Richie was doing some television at the time, but said that he was hoping to make a return to driving. He was looking for sponsorship and all that. But very sadly, Richie died in a plane crash near Ryan, South Carolina on September the 1st, 1985, just a couple of years after this issue was released. Obviously, that was a very tragic incident. I think Richie Pence showed a lot of promise when he first started racing, but as it happened so many times, he just didn't get the brakes. Mike Hembry had a story in this issue on the action that NASCAR took in various on-track incidents and how it sometimes varied. <laughs> <laughs> you have mentioned this incident on the podcast two or three times, but Ricky Rudd was livid with Joe Rutman after the Martinsville race a couple of weeks earlier actually rammed him three yeah. times after the checkered flag. Now, Ricky was fined $1,500 and put on a 10-race probation. On the other hand, however, the year before, Cal Yarbrough won at Michigan, but again, after the checkered flag, Darrell Waltrip tried to ram into him on the cool-down lap, and DW wound up spinning himself out instead into the infield, and all DW got was a talking to from NASCAR. Bill Gasway, NASCAR's director of racing operations at the time, said the Waltrip incident could have resulted in him getting penalties, but he didn't chase Kale down. At Martinsville, we witnessed Rudd hitting Rutman three times. I guess it's the severity of the thing. Later, Gasway also added, first, there's the danger involved, and we also feel like we don't need that kind of image. We're in the auto racing business not the fighting business. We're not going to put up with things like that. The next guy who does it probably will be dealt with more severely. You do what you have to do to keep law in order. Well, what Gazaway was saying was that Daryl tried to hit Kale, but did not do it and spun out himself. Ricky clearly <laughs> hit Joe Rubin, not once, not twice, but three times. Therefore, NASCAR had to take some kind of action. And Bill was right. NASCAR did not want the image of guys getting into car fights after a race. There was a small standalone photo in the scene on the circuit section 
of a show truck built for Buck Baker's brand new National Pickup Truck Racing Association. The division made its debut the following month at Rockingham and ran for a couple of seasons before kind of disbanding. But Steve, that was the forerunner to what is now the Camping World Truck Series. When the truck series that we now know began in 1995, I went and I actually spent some time with Buck Baker talking about this truck series that he would tried to do. And during that time with Buck, he gave me one of the all-time greatest quotes that I ever heard in NASCAR, and I will never, ever, ever, ever be able to share it here on the podcast. <laughs> no way. Oh, how <laughs> uh, being, being as though Buck said it, I am not surprised. <laughs> Hi, fans. This is Butch Mock, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, again, we have been pretty busy during this hiatus over the holidays. We've got this interview with Phil Parsons in the can. We also have an absolutely epic conversation with Jeff Hammond that we did. And finally, I also sat down with Butch Mock at his garage. And Steve, his garage is something to behold. I've walked in and I said immediately, I want to move in. I want, to, I want to sleep in a cot in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rick, you've been a pretty busy guy, but we've got a lot more planned, and I'm looking forward to it. I hope the listeners are too. It's going to be good. Stay tuned. Adam and I have found a, a golf video game. Oh, and yeah? We have played that thing a million times during the Christmas break and everything. At first, he was beating me by... 20, 25 strokes or whatever. And now I've kind of narrowed it down to where I've kind of beat him a couple of times. He beat, he usually wins, yeah. but I've actually beat him two or three times. Now he's in there practicing. <laughs> so we got to cut this podcast short so I can go supervise. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>